Hello and welcome to Dragon Talk, everyone. I am Greg Tito. I am joined by the amazing Shelly Mazanoble. Oh! That's you! Oh, I thought somebody else was joining us. No. Oh, well, oh. In fact, two other people will be joining us. I'm very excited about that. We're going to talk some more Adventurers League stuff yes. uh, with Travis Woodall and Claire Hoffman, two admins from the D&D Adventurers League. Uh, our second episode in uh, going through all these six admins and letting us know what they do and why D&D Adventures League is so pretty awesome. Yes. Yes. If anyone can tell us, they can tell us. Exactly. Well, and probably the people who play in Adventures League. A lot of them tell us yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, and Chris Lindsay tries to talk to us about and it. And he does too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But these people are on the ground floor yes. making they it all happen. Making it awesome. Yeah, exactly. So they're on the standby. They're waiting on the Skypes right now as right. we speak. So I feel like we got to get through uh, what's what's going on in Dungeons and Dragons land. Okay. What's going on you? What's going on with you, Shelley? Well, you know. Old. Your birthday's coming up. Making some games. It is. You're going to be how old? 30. <laughs> I was going to go with 29. Oh, no. I'm turning 30 this year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Big, big 3-0. Yeah, I'm super excited. Are you going to go get mojitos? Oh, and... I'm going to just tear it up. Yeah. I'm super excited. Probably go shopping at Forever 21. <laughs> <laughs> I hear they have Dungeons & Dragons shirt there now. Do, are you serious? No, but they should. That's, we're on it. We're on it. Oh my Hillary God. Ross is making it happen. Wow. All over the town. All right. All right. And then, uh, you know, go out to uh, see a show. Yes. No, I'm just going to go out. But not until like 11 mm. at night. Like that's that's what, what all the young people do. That's what I would do. Yeah, you don't start yeah. actually your night until like 1 a.m. And you're like, let's no, go to the EDM like dance race. Pre-funk for like five hours and then go out. Have dinner, yeah, and then go out dancing, like all millennials do. Yeah, I'm, I am a millennial. I'm a millennial. It's true. Aww. You would be if you were 30 years old. <laughs> yeah, exciting and new. 30 plus, like decade and some change, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever. I know you failed. You failed your uh, uh, deception role pretty early. Why do people lie about their age and make themselves younger? I, well, I think it's a it's a, a, a pride thing, right? Like you want to be like, oh, I'm I'm still young and available or something. But Which, why? What, what kills me is when people who are like married and have kids and are like very like, yeah, like in their lives, and they matter. still want to be like, no, by the way. But also, like, don't you want to look good for your age? That's right. Like if I'm if I was seriously like, oh, I'm thirty. There's like people right now that are going. <gasps> Like, Jesus. what's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. Have you heard of sunscreen, woman? <laughs> so, I mean, I would rather just tell people I'm going to be 52, and hopefully somebody's going to say, oh. she looks pretty good for 52. I didn't 52. even think about that. Like, go the other way. Age up. Right. Yeah. I like that, too. I'm going to yeah. start telling people that. I'm like, I'm 65. <laughs> I can still run on the treadmill. Yeah, and, I saw uh, you in the gym today. Exactly. We were gymming Laughing. Around. I wasn't laughing as much this time, was we have, I? We have very different um, treadmill distractions. Yeah. Because you always are like, whoa, laughing. And today I was watching This Is Us. I got a little teary. <laughs> like crying that on the show. treadmill. Oh crying my gosh. on the treadmill. I thought, of, I thought of you and our conversations about going to see theater and all this stuff when I watched uh, the show Red Oaks. Uh, it's, it's a great show. Everybody should watch it. They just had their third season. But there's this character... Uh, in it, who goes to see cats because it's set in the 80s. <laughs> and it's not even like a really long scene. It's maybe like 30 seconds, but he's there with his like new uh, uh, girlfriend and he's crying, sobbing <laughs> at watching cats. And I immediately was like, uh, that's me. 
That is that's, that's what totally I look like. You. That is what I do. And then afterwards, he's like talking and kind of like being critical of the show. Like he like I, I would totally have that right. that experience. You're totally just moved by something. Emotionally moved by especially theater. If like people are singing yes. in like a stage thing, I, I lose it. Just it just moves you. I lose it. When I hear people sing "Happy Birthday," I get emotional. Like not it's <laughs> not like, to me. It's like we'll just be in a restaurant just hanging out, and then like it's the waiters coming up and "Happy Birthday" to you. I'm like oh my god, somebody's having a birthday. Oh that makes gosh. me sad. And I always think of Michael Jackson. And you know what else? I noticed on my birthday last year when people were singing to me. When you turned Qu- 28? When I turned, no, it was 29 last year. <laughs> Quinn was emotional. Oh, he's, you're making he's a like, little He's shelly. getting that. You're making a little shelly. And shelling. he went to the theater last week with his preschool. Uh-huh. They saw Cinderella, and he got super emotional. The teacher said, like, I had to go get him and have him sit next to me because he was sad and scared. That's sweet. Yeah. That's, I feel like, like I'd be in the same like, boat. He's like a little Greg to you, though. <laughs> He is going to be moved by theater and performance and art and singing from yes. from now on in yes. his life. Yes. Maybe he'll be a bard. He could I like be. that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, so what's uh, going on with you? What's, what's happening? Uh, I'm D&D playing stuff. some Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. Yeah, right. Thinking about uh, Daryl Two Shoes. And are you uh, bringing him back? Maybe. Maybe I should. Greg and I are in a, a new game starting this week. Bring back Drunky Two Shoes and Daryl Two Shoes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. They're good tabaxis. I know. They didn't really get a chance. Did they? We didn't really even flesh out their backstory too much. Like, no. did they, were they raised from the same litter? I think so. Yeah? Like, they were raised together? I feel like Daryl was kind of the runt, and Drunky was, like, his protector. I think that might be right. Yeah. Yeah. That and makes sense. I feel like he's also a little bit embarrassed by her. Mm. I think so. He's trying yeah. to have, like, more of a normal yeah. life. Yeah. He went she... the stern, like, I'm going to be a soldier. I'm going to work yeah. uh, uh, at being, uh, you know, uh, going against type. For Tabaxi right. and like be like super responsible. And she's all in. Yeah. She is banging her tambourines and <laughs> running through Cast the nets. jungle on the back of a dinosaur. Yeah. We don't even know what, what we're playing though I know. on Thursday. We know it's, nothing. It's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah. I don't know if they'll be in Schultz anymore. They might be in a whole new world. I have no idea. He wouldn't tell me anything. Yeah. I like it. I don't even really know who's playing with us. Um, I don't either. Pelham is. Pelham is. Pelham, are you playing? Do you, oh, do you want to be part of the Two Shoes family? Are you in our litter? <laughs> <laughs> you could be. You really could be. Did you make your character yet? I did. So uh, uh, we, we're going to have to have Pelham on and like, do a whole interview with him at some point, I think. Um, but uh, in Dungeons and Dragons land, I feel like uh, it's January 25th. <laughs> And so much is happening. Uh, there is an amazing event happening in Idol Champions of the Forgotten Realms. Oh, okay. Yeah, where you can get, uh, as a playable character, uh, Regis from the... From Live with Kelly? And- yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> uh, but I went with Kathy Lee, because it will always be oh, Re- Regis yeah, and right. Kathy Lee yeah. in my heart of hearts. Yeah, that was um, In our group, you're, you're Regis, right? And I'm, I'm Kathy Lee. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, but no, Regis from uh, Bob's uh, books, The Crystal Shard. Oh, uh, nice. He's one of the companions. You can play as, as, as him. Should that's be really cool. Really exciting. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, the, we announced, or, or rather our friends, uh, Cryptic Studios, announced that a new expansion to Neverwinter is coming out. It's going to be the final update in the Tomb of Annihilation kind of storyline. Okay, uh, very it'll be, good. It'll be out in uh, February 27th on the PC with the PS4 and Xbox One releases soon after. All right. Should be pretty exciting. Do you have any announcements? Uh, for me, myself. Just in general? I'm um, having a baby. No, I'm just, I wish. Oh. Wouldn't that be great? You wish? Are you serious? <laughs> I'm a terrible person. Oh, my God. Who likes Aaron, children? are you I know. watching this? She probably isn't. 
but maybe she will she be. She probably is. This was, this was me telling her, by the way. <laughs> Aaron, we're having a baby. <laughs> it's the show. I'm birthing a well, new that's show. very exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, what about, yeah, I don't have any other announcements. Okay. I know you've got lots of things in the hopper for 2018 for Avalon Hill, but we'll have to go into more detail in the months to come when that all happens. Yeah. All right. And soon when um, Rob is done. Yes. Working on this amazing legacy game. It's, We're going to have to have him on. Yeah. I mean, um, I wonder what Rob's legacy is going to be. It's interesting. <laughs> game design. What is your legacy? <laughs> it's like, well, it might just be legacy. might just be the legacy. <laughs> the legacy, legacy. Nice. Well, I had an awesome conversation with Jeremy Crawford uh, about encounter building. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, let's move on to our little sage advice segment with some bings and some bongs. Okay. Right about now, and then we'll get to our interview. Sound yes, like fun? Yeah, All right. Baby. Let's bing bong it up. everyone, and welcome to another edition of Sage Advice. I am Greg Tito, and I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Crawford. Hello, everyone. How is it going? Great. Great. Yes. <laughs> it's the new year. We get to work on D&D. What's not to like? Exactly. Well, except for all the other things that are happening in the world. But we'll ignore that for this next hour uh, while we talk about uh, some fun stuff in Dungeons & Dragons rules uh, that we don't necessarily get from you know your Sage Advice columns or things like that. This is a way for us to kind of investigate different uh, bigger topics in uh, what is going on with the mechanics and the intent of the design behind them. And uh, today, we are going to talk about encounter building. Yes, Indeed. I immediately latched onto when you said challenge rating, and you're like, no, it's bigger than challenge rating. It's like the uh, the whole idea, but that'll be a part of the discussion, too, is what CR means uh, for us and, and, and how to interpret that and use that when you're building encounters. Exactly. Right. So where do you want to start? Should we start with the first encounter? The first encounter. <laughs> of the third kind? <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this spaceship descends from the sky. It's There's mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> That point you to where you can meet the spell jammer that yes. will take you up into the Flogiston and travel from Faerun to Orth. But wait, that's not what we're talking about oh, today. God, we should. Now you got like 50 people who are like, we should talk about that yes. right now. <laughs> one, of the, this- one of these days, I will happily do a spell jammer one. Yeah, nice. They've talked about it a lot on uh, Lori Should Know. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, plus my home campaign is chock full of airships and spelljammer type craft, so it's near and dear to my heart. Nice. But encounters. Yes. How which, you how which, you encounter them? Which can certainly include airships and creatures from beyond the stars. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you're justifying the tangent. Yes. Like it's, it's it's okay. It's the, the same. I mean, this, this is sort of the the beauty in D and D that. In some ways, D&D is all tangent since, right. since you can encounter pretty much anything. Uh, and the encounter rules in 5th uh, edition, which are expressed in their most detailed fashion in the Dungeon Master's Guide, are really there to help DMs get a handle on how difficult a combat encounter in particular uh, might be. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that in a game that has three main pillars, combat, social interaction, and exploration, in the just sort of normal English sense of the word encounter, you can have other kinds of encounters. I mean, you, you know, you can have a heated argument with somebody, uh, you know, a, a diplomatic uh, engagement of some kind. Uh, you can encounter something wondrous in the wilderness, but it did not involve battle in any way. 
When we talk about encounter building, we're specifically zeroing in on combat encounters. And the whole reason we have these rules is not because there's uh, assumed to be a correct way of building encounters. That's Mm -hmm. actually one of the main things I wanted to get across uh, in this segment is there is not one right way to do it. There's not like some mystical formula. If you just add this and add this, you'll get the most fun that your players will ever have. Exactly. Because because we have all had experiences in D&D games where the drunk goblin at the gate all by itself – could end up being more fun than the carefully calibrated set piece battle, you know, at the top of a tower while there's a vortex to hell nearby. It's like the drunk goblin, if role played well, can be just as exciting, even if the numbers tell you this is not really a challenge. Right. Uh, so, so much in D&D is about the story that's brought to bear, uh, the role playing, not only by the DM, but also by the players. You do often as a DM, particularly when you're writing an adventure, preparing for a session, have this question that will pop into your head. And this is really the question that the encounter building rules are meant to answer. Mm. And that is, is this going to kill them all? (laughs) (laughs) Am I throwing too much at them and the kitchen sink? Yes. And so the encounter building rules are really there for the DM to try to suss out in advance, is this encounter going to be too dangerous. Now, you can also use the encounter building rules to assess, is it going to be super easy? Is it going to be just right? Is it going to be kind of hard? Or is it going to be super duper hard and probably kill them all? The rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide help you uh, get a sense of of where in the spectrum of difficulty an encounter is likely to land. Yeah. It really, in the end, though, is really just giving you a sense. And the reason why I say this is there are so many variables that can come into play in a D&D encounter. You could have an encounter where you uh, face four ogres and you're standing on a road on, you know, a wheat-filled plain. That encounter is going to play out very differently if you met the same four ogres on a collapsing bridge over a chasm of lava right? Uh, with occasional uh, you know, lava jets shooting up at you while you're trying to fight the ogres and not fall off the bridge to almost certain death below. So just environmental factors can change, how difficult something will be in play. We also know that because of the variability that we've built into the game with things like critical hits and... Uh, the recharge abilities of certain monsters, that an encounter that you could DM it with one group and because of how the dice rolled for you, eh, it was not too bad. Yeah. The very next group, if you as DM, your dice are on fire, suddenly that very same combat encounter could be devastating. Right. Uh, a great example of this is our dragons have breath weapons that uh, use the recharge mechanic and... Uh, Many of them will come back on a roll of a five or a six, in some cases just a six on a D6. Mm -hmm. And you could have a group where they just have rotten luck and that breath weapon keeps coming back. And in that case, that dragon's going to be way more difficult than it would be normally. Or the opposite can happen where, you know, not even just by chance, but like a good circumstance or taking advantage of the circumstances on the part of the player can you know, ruin a carefully crafted, you know, uh, tentpole encounter where you're like, okay, this is going to be the big bad, 
and someone rolls a crit, crit, someone has a really great idea on how to sneak into something, and then all of a sudden, all that dramatic combat that you've planned for the next three hours gets diffused in 30 minutes. Exactly. And the thing is, that variability, we consider it to be a feature, not yeah. a bug of the game. We, <laughs> I'm not sure if everyone out there thinks yeah, right. that way, but yeah. But we, we designed uh, this variability into the game partly for the sake of narrative surprise, mm. not only for the players, but for the dungeon master. Oh, that's a good point. We love that not even the DM can fully predict how something is going to play out. And that makes it so that even the DM gets to experience D&D as a game yeah. uh, without some of these, these little dice surprises uh, that occur in pretty much every session of D&D. Mm-hmm. It would be super easy for DMs to predict and railroad various outcomes because of that variability. Even that question of will the dragon be able to use its breath weapon a second time uh, – Let's the DM in on that fun, that the fun of just you're playing a game and you don't even know. You're the narrative, you're the narrator of the story, and you don't even know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I think that point is lost uh, for for some players who don't realize that they want their dungeon master to be these puppet masters and and having all the answers, and they portray themselves that way. I mean, I know as a dungeon master, sometimes I will make it seem like, oh, I knew exactly what was going to happen when I had no clue. But you're right, there is that nugget of fun for the dungeon master to roll with the improv just as much as uh, of a a dice roll and how it goes, just as much as the players like to do that. And I, as a DM, love to really let myself have fun with that game aspect. So one example of me doing this is anytime I'm running a monster with a recharge ability, I will almost always roll the recharge die uh, on the other side of the DM screen, so the players can see it, right. so that it, they're seeing that I don't, I don't even know. It's not me, guys. And, and <laughs> it's e- a chance. Even better, a lot of the time I have the players roll it Ooh. because then it 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 really changes the dynamic of basically it. it, it gives them sometimes this terrible feeling of we caused its breath weapon to recharge. <laughs> right, that's kind of cruel. Way to go, Jerry. <laughs> You're like, if you had just rolled better, <laughs> you would all be dead. Random number generator, you would have done better. Yeah. Yeah. But it 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 creates those improv opportunities which I think often lead to our favorite moments when playing D D. Uh, sometimes it can lead to a spectacular, unexpected success, and then it can also lead to a catastrophe. Right. Sometimes the catastrophe in my mind is even better than the spectacular success uh, because I think something, something I, I like to talk about and I know many other experienced DMs like to talk about is this notion of leaning into failure, mm. of seeing failure in a narrative game like D&D as an opportunity to steer things in new and wonderful directions, to to have one problem spawn other problems for the heroes to try to solve, yeah. or villains if you're playing a group, you know, a group of rascals. Because uh, yeah. some D and D parties are a bunch of rascals. Because there can be definitely moments when you're playing where you you know you roll a hit and you miss, and you know I I'm guilty of this sometimes myself. I'm like, oh okay, I just missed. Go to the next turn, blah blah blah. But I love the moments when you describe exactly how you missed. And you're right, that can often lead to just more storytelling, right? If you just are like, okay, I rolled this dice and I didn't get the number I hit, 
there's no not a lot of narrative play there, right? But if you say like, oh, I swung my sword and I hit a barrel of oil and that oil is leaking all over the floor, mm-hmm. you're like, that's so they're all right, well, that's more possibilities. Maybe someone takes advantage of that. Maybe you take advantage of that, you know, and so all of a sudden a failure becomes something that makes the the, the dynamic of the encounter so much more interesting. Yeah, and now when that, that oil is is oozing around the battlefield, people are like, oh, my God, don't cast burning hands. Yeah, right. Or yeah. do, go, you know, like, yeah, engineer it, it in a way to get them in yep. the right, the enemies in the right situation to cast it. Yeah, yeah. exactly, which yeah. is way more fun than I missed. You know, go to the next, go to the next person. Right. Yeah. Right. So the CR or the challenge rating is meant to be a tool to, you know, even though there is all this variance mm-hmm. in, in how an encounter will play out in real play, to at least give you the, okay, this is in an ideal situation, this is how difficult this encounter is going to be for my players. Yes. So, so the challenge rating in, in our monsters, uh, it basically what it communicates to you on its own is that a monster of a particular challenge rating on its own will usually it's, – it's not going to wipe a group out if you have a group of sort of a regular size which can run anywhere between like three and six characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I give a range there because uh, even though often in our rules they'll say the typical group is four uh, yeah. or it's fine if it's five and six is okay too and maybe three <laughs> – it, that, that number shifts depending on the mix of the group. So right. let's say uh, you have a group, uh, no one has a single healing ability. Uh, everyone has, you know, sort of their hit points are in the basement. They all, you know, con was their dump stat and they, or, or they rolled for their hit points and rolled horribly. Uh, a suboptimal party, yes, is that what you're trying to say? Yes, if you have a suboptimal <laughs> party, uh, you, there could even be five of you and suddenly, you know, what what is actually not too hard for the three or four person group is a nightmare for you because of your mix. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a bit of a range there. Uh, but again, if let's say typical group, usually four to five characters, you look at the CR or even six characters, you look at the CR and you think, oh, yeah, this this CR, the CR three monster is not going to give a a a third level party too much trouble. Mm-hmm. And that's really all it's telling you. It's not telling you this is going to make a satisfying fight. Mm. It's not telling you everyone's going to have a lot of fun if you <laughs> if you do this. Uh, because there's so much more art involved in, again, the role playing and the environment you use. Really, again, all it's telling you is how likely is this thing to just kill them all yeah. uh, and do so easily. Now, it starts getting trickier when you start adding monsters together because it's fairly rare for a combat encounter to just be one monster mm-hmm. uh, unless it's a legendary monster. And a legendary monster uh, is really designed to be sort of an entire encounter in itself. This is why legendary creatures uh, have their legendary actions, which they get to take at the end of other people's turns. Right. I mean, they're really – They're f- almost acting like a group of, of monsters in that in that situation right? exactly and we've designed them as such that yeah. that you know it's like this this monster shows up and it's basically i'm a whole group of people uh, <laughs> and i've got all these actions that yes. i can always do every turn right yeah but, um but, but going, going back to what you're saying about the, the three you know uh, a challenge rating of three if you're a third level party it shouldn't be too hard but when you add in another third level or three cr monster how does that change it? So it's, it's at that point that you're going to want to take a look at the rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide where it, it, it basically takes the monsters, turns them into hit point totals, 
and says, okay, total up these hit points. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not hit points, experience points. Uh, and then compare that to the levels of the, the characters in the party. There are tables for you to look at, and it helps you gauge uh, how difficult a group of monsters is likely to be for a party of a particular level. Mm-hmm. Now, in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, we provide an alternative way of assessing this. And frankly, I think it's an easier way because mm. the the approach in the Dungeon Master's Guide requires you to do quite a bit of math. And because not only are you uh, basically reducing all the monsters to piles of XP and then you compare those to levels, it then also introduces this notion of once a party gets big enough that you then also have to apply a multiplier to deal with the with the fact that the more player characters you have, the less difficult a certain group of monsters become. Yeah. It also has the opposite of that, of the, the smaller your group gets, then there's another multiplier, which also changes the difficulty. Uh, you know, I, as a DM, created a spreadsheet that does all of this for me, but we realized not everyone is going to want to have to do all of these calculations. So in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, we have a new set of tables where you can cross-reference, look up CR, look up the level of the characters, and then it just tells you, uh, you know, this this number of creatures of this CR is not going to be too hard for this number of characters of this level. Got it. So it does a lot of the math for you. And then there's also a separate table specifically for monsters you're likely to meet by themselves. So usually that's going to mean a legendary, a mm-hmm. legendary monster. But again, it's important, especially for people who are coming from 3rd and 4th edition, to not mistake what these encounter building guidelines are telling them. We're not telling you, you know, a correct encounter has this mix of monsters. Mm. A correct encounter is one that people have a good time playing through. That, That is actually the only measure of did you build a good encounter was did people have a good time? If the answer is yes, you built a great encounter. Right. All these rules are telling you is it's giving you an assessment in advance of how likely a particular monster or group of monsters is going to give your group a, a bunch of trouble. Right. When we design uh, our adventures, like Tomb of Annihilation, we use these guidelines uh, not to build our different encounters in the adventure in a kind of highly scientific way. We use them to do exactly this test, and that is, is this particular potential combat encounter going to be harder than we want it to be? Mm. Uh, because for a lot of uh, our published adventures, we'll have broad difficulty targets for different parts of the adventure. For example, we might decide that one chapter of one of our adventures, whether it's Tomb of Annihilation or Storm King's Thunder or Curse of Strahd, is really designed to be not too much trouble for a group that say like, okay, this chapter might be for generally six-level characters. Characters of any level can go into that chapter. But really what we're doing is just we want to ensure that if the kind of optimal group is there, it's not too much trouble. And then, of course, if if you're lower level or less optimal, the difficulty is going to start going up. And then if you're higher level... Uh, or more optimal, the difficulty is going to start going down. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's really for us again just a test for, you know, we just want to make sure that this thing that's meant to be a challenge but not a TPK is indeed a challenge and not a total party kill. Yeah, and that's a difficult thing to 
uh, encapsulated in just like, okay, this is the exact number that you need to be in order to get that. I know some Dungeon Masters I've seen online are like, oh, my characters, you know, my party was at X level, but they they really want to go to this place. And how do I tell them not to do that? You know, because they won't be okay. And I think there is the uh, almost expectation that the Dungeon Master won't present challenges or encounters that are too far outside their 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 level right right uh and the expect expectation is like oh the, my my dungeon master is not gonna try to kill me all the time but there is something to be said about like well that's just you need to be able to know that there's lethal parts of the the world that you cannot always do or if you do you have to make sure you're very careful and you're using all of the, you can't just go walk in willy-nilly and i think there's something in the open, you know, I mean, I guess we're talking a little bit more about, like, you know, open uh, style uh, adventure writing of, of you're exploring a whole area versus the more narrative of, like, okay, event, 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 event. Um, but, I mean, th- those kind of play into it. It's like, you know, that's why it's harder for some Dungeon Masters to run sandbox campaigns is because, well, how do I, how do I deal with that? So a DM could certainly, whether it's an adventure they're designing themselves or if they're taking one of our published adventures and modifying it, they could certainly use the encounter building guidelines in the Dungeon Master's Guide or in Xanathar's Guide to adjust all the encounters so that they are uh, designed specifically for their group of characters. Right. And, and these guidelines would help the DM figure out roughly how difficult uh, a combat encounter is going to be. Our, our starting insum- assumption in 5th edition, though, is that the game is pretty open-ended and sandboxy. And... We often like, particularly in our published adventures, dangling out the possibility that you might wander into a fight you can't win. Yeah. Uh, because we don't we don't view the game as a series of combat encounters that you are expected to face in a predictable way and then march off with a set amount of experience points and treasure. Yeah. We view the game as a set of potential combat encounters, some of which you might might not turn into combat at all because you might talk your way out of the problem. You might cleverly use a spell or the environment or one of your class features or an element of your character's background to circumvent the problem entirely. Mm. Uh, and all of those to me are, are legitimate ways to handle the many challenges that face adventurers in D&D. Mm. And often those non-combat ways can be the most exciting when you, right. when you f- figure out, okay, we can just avoid this whole thing. And I, as a DM, reward a group uh, that does that sort of problem-solving just as much as a group that fights its way through the problems. You know, I'll give just as much experience points and I'll try to make it so that if there was a treasure involved, uh, that there's an opportunity to gain treasure in some other way at a later point. Right. Uh, because, the, the, again, the point is moving the story forward, having a great time, and solving problems without, we hope, DMs getting too fixated on only one way through the problem. Mm. Uh, and that can include not expecting always that people will fight their way through something. Uh, I often like, too, having uh, potential combat encounters in an adventure, particularly one that I, that I know I'll be DMing, because then I can, I can control what happens at the table. I often like having ones in the path of the party that the numbers tell me this is way difficult. This, mm. If they try to fight their way through this without negotiating, without fleeing, 
uh, this has a good chance of destroying them. Not because I want to destroy them. It's because I love the sense of the world being living and breathing that that often gives, that that reminds them that they're not they're not in a sort of they're not in a video game like experience where everything has sort of been pre-calibrated for them. They're in a living world and they happen to wander into this place that's like, oh boy, <laughs> and this you. is too much. And it's often a great opportunity to uh, reveal something about the setting. Uh, it's also a chance sometimes to introduce NPCs or friendly monsters that might show up to help them. Mm. Uh, sometimes if they do get themselves into trouble, I like to have an ally of theirs show up and help them out uh, because that's also another sign of th- being a living, breathing world. That like, hey, they helped that that high-level cleric a while ago who it turns out has been scrying on them and knew that they were getting into trouble and sends help. Yeah. Um, so that also it adds to the storytelling. It's it, not. It's not. Doesn't take away. Exactly. Uh, I often love to give warnings. So often, you spe- kind of have to. <laughs> yes. Often, quest giver, quest giving NPCs uh, in my games will give cues about the danger of something. You know, and we'll do some version of like. Are you sure you want to go in there? Yeah. You know, and click yes. No. Yeah, like this is. This is what you might be facing, you know, if you go in there. Uh, and I've also I've also made use a number of times uh, over the years of DMing of, you know, as a last-ditch effort of a fight starts that I know the players cannot survive. And I will have some version of the NPC who rides by and says some version of, fly, you fools, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Because, <laughs> like, again, there are other people in the world, especially if you're not down in a deep, you know, deep dungeon. If you're, if, you're up, if you're up in the wilderness or you're in a city or in your castle, there's likely someone else in the world knows what you're up against. Yeah, and, and knows how dangerous it can be. And, and can yell out, you know, are you crazy? You know, get out of here. Yeah. You're going to die. Or, or to start <laughs> off a fight with like a, a bang, right? Like, yeah. You know, like you use the breath weapon in the first round so they know exactly what they're up against or something like that so that it becomes like, okay, no, this is not just a, you know, a dragon that is injured and ready to be killed. Like, no, this is a dragon at its height of its power, and you're all going to experience that right now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that happened in my home game uh, several, actually more than several sessions ago. The player characters wandered uh, in this mystical place through this portal that allowed them to see a possible future for the mm. campaign and a possible outcome should they fail in their great quest. And so they actually got a glimpse of Doomsday and they appeared in the midst of this epic battle uh, and they were on this airship being attacked by an ancient dragon. And I really wanted to drive home for them that like this is not a place where you're just going to stand and fight. And so exactly as you say, the dragon, first thing, breathed and one of the characters was almost instantly killed. And so my my players are experienced. They got the message loud and clear. They're yeah. like, we are getting the hell out of here right. <laughs> because this is not a fight we can win. That's cool. That's a good signpost. Yes. Use, use the mirror of Galadriel to, uh, to show how terrible <laughs> your life will be if you go down that path. Yes. So they, uh, they ran out of that possible future really fast. Right. Yes. <laughs> but don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so, so after all we've talked about here, then what are some uh, – you know, guidelines that you've used that that makes an, a, a, an encounter memorable. I know you said like, oh, that's the only real measure is are people talking about it? Is it did they have fun doing it? Uh, which I totally agree with. But then what are 
what are some ways that you can use the stuff that's in our books as well as some of your personal ways to like, all right, really spice up those encounters? So one, one thing that uh, I like to do is ramp encounters up. Uh, it, it's very easy, and this is, a per, this is a fine way to start fights, where you basically, you roll initiative, everyone is there, and like if you're, if you're, if you're using miniatures, you know, you've placed all the miniatures out on the grid and fight. Uh, I like to vary that sometimes of having fights where not all the combatants are there at the start. Mm. Uh, so I like that the rising tension of the fight getting a little more difficult as it goes along or less difficult if it turns out the people showing up are actually showing up to help the player characters. Oh, right. yeah. uh, because that's, that's another thing that I, I really love to play with is not just your fighting might notify more foes, which happens quite a lot actually in D&D adventures. You know? And in, in many published adventures even, it will say things like, if you make too much noise, then the monsters in the next door rooms come running in. Yeah. Well, particularly because I run a lot of urban games, I run uh, lots of a lot adventures that take place in also in uh, wilderness areas, um, but then also in dungeons where there are potentially friendly uh, creatures as well. I don't like sometimes for there to be a chance for helpful people yeah. to show up, or for uh, I also like when it comes to sort of changing circumstances to have the environment change over the course of a fight mm. uh, whether you know it's the classic the, you know the place is collapsing or this portal is opening or you know there's some kind of timed element where there is some MacGuffin in the room where you know if it's allowed if all three gems light up over the you know the course of the next few rounds then Something happen. awful TM is going to happen. <laughs> so, I, again, I like timed elements. Uh, I also uh, – another way I actually introduce this of circumstances changing is I love having villains who – they themselves introduce complications. Mm. Um, a great example of this is the villain who loves monologuing so much that – they say so. There's the normal way of monologuing, where it basically, you know, the villain. The, I'm going to kill you for yeah. all the things that you've done. Let me list all of them right now. Yeah, before and, I destroy you. And and then sometimes we'll like give away part of the plot. So that's the classic villain saying too much. So I do that sometimes, uh, partly just because it's fun. <laughs> uh, but I also like sometimes adding twists in the midst of combat, where over the course of monologuing, a villain might suddenly uh, plant a seed of doubt in the player characters about why they're fighting this person. Mm. Par- particularly because in my home game, I often have multiple villain groups. Like in my current game, there are at least four. And if any of my players are listening to this, this is actually a slight spoiler <laughs> uh, because I think they have figured out there are at least two villain groups. It actually turns out there are four villain oh groups. Gosh. I love that you're saying at least two because <laughs> yes. there, there could be more. We yes. can add more later. And But the villain groups are actually all at war with each other. And some of them are less evil than others. In fact, one of the villain groups is not actually evil. It just has goals that are different and often opposing to the player characters. Um, So I like to sometimes, if they're up against a foe, have the foe let slip some piece of information that plants a seed of doubt of like, wait a second, this person might not be as bad as we thought. Is this the right... Should we even be fighting this? Right. Yeah. And then you have those great moments of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Okay. Let's, let's, let's uh, redirect. Redirect. Because <laughs> when you realize suddenly the real big bad is someplace else who might uh, actually be 
the lighting and the fact that these two, that the, the player characters. Right. Two and, of my rivals are yeah, taking each other out. Exactly. This is exactly what, playing into their plans. Yeah. I also have a group of villains uh, called the Priests of Osibus who are actually mentioned in The Curse of Strahd. Uh, who my players, oh, God, do they hate them. Uh, and they're supposed to. I designed them to be hated. Yeah. They, are, they are a group of necromancers who have this sign uh, in, burned somewhere on their body called the Mark of Elathon. Uh, their god is Elathon. Uh, that when they die, if this mark is not destroyed, after a certain number of rounds, it will illuminate and they will, come, they will resur- auto-resurrect as some form of undead. And this just will keep happening until uh, the, the, the mark is destroyed. So really, that's just a kind of like fancy special effect for me to add more monsters to an encounter. Right. And, and so I, I like coming up with fancy ways of more of basically just some version of more dudes show up. Yeah. Um, but there are many ways you can have more guys show up. And again, have this amped up tension so that not every fight is simply the, here are my pieces on this side, here are your pieces on that side, we roll through a fight, and we move on. Yeah. Which is, that's perfectly acceptable, and it's also good to have those sorts of fights sometimes. Really, what I'm, where I'm going with all of this is variety is great. Yeah. Uh, you want a mix of the encounters that are kind of easy and straightforward, ones that are a bit more complex, ones with surprises. Uh, if if only as a DM to amuse yourself uh, so you don't get bored, uh, that you're always introducing something that uh, makes your players uh, feel that, oh, my gosh, are we going to get through this? Uh, or it's also great to sometimes give them that feeling of, ooh, this is a cakewalk. We've got it. Yeah, there is that idea that, like, you, you can feel powerful uh, if you just, you know, throw a bunch of you – know, and Minions were great for this in 4th edition for that reason. where like, oh, you're mowing through the, these goblins that, you know, at first level – were a substantial threat uh, to you, but now you know you're at sixth level. They're nothing, and you, one fireball takes rid of all of them. And that sometimes that builds that up. And then it's a great way to do that right before the big bad. That's going to be the big dragon that's going to blow them out the way, so they feel real powerful. <laughs> and then, oh wait, by the way, let me cut you down the size, right? Uh, and all that too. So and 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 I love that you bring that up because uh, great storytelling involves, as we know, showing not telling. Mm-hmm. And I do really like to show in a campaign occasionally that the player characters have gotten more powerful. And, and as, you, as you said, it is great to bring back foes they fought before, types of foes they fought before who gave them trouble and now are easy. It's such a satisfying way for the, the players to see, oh, yeah, we did get more powerful. This. Yeah, yeah. We, we've got it. Because you, you want as a DM to give the players victories. Uh, so that you can then also give them struggles. <laughs> and slip that, that carpet right out from under them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah you, because again, every, any good story has sort of this rising and falling action, and, yeah. you know, where the, the rising tension and then, you know, the tension dissipates, and it's a roller coaster. And there's the idea that, you know, we, we brought it out at the beginning of this conversation, where, like, if there's a CR guidelines, and those are the ones that you need to follow for every encounter so to make sure that they're the exact amount of challenge uh, that will uh, put players up against the wall but won't kill them, right? And if you do that for every single encounter, then that isn't, doesn't have any tense moments anymore. You're, like, you're losing the, the idea that, okay, there's going to be crests and falls and narrative tension uh, will come and go. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's, there's the danger you can fall into to making, you know, perfectly crafting encounters too much. Exactly. Because if you do that, 
if, if you took our encounter building guidelines and said, all right, I'm going to make my third level group only go up against CR3 monsters, there's a good chance your game is going to start feeling uh, a little monotonous, mm-hmm. uh, a little boring. Um, vary it. You know, have some encounters that are going to be tougher. Have some encounters that are going to be easier. And the encounter building guidelines in, in Xanathar's Guide and the DMG are there to help you assess that beforehand. But, right. it, but again, it's not going to be an exact science. Um, Those are tools that you can use in the craft of encounter building. Yes. And often uh, you're going to find yourself wanting to adjust difficulty on the fly. Yeah. Uh, because, and this is the beauty of having a game that's run by a dungeon master as opposed to, you know, it's not run by the rule book. It's run by the DM who can see how things are actually going in play. Yeah. Uh, read you know, the room. And yeah, read, see, you know, we've talked about this before that, you know, read your players, see what what's causing them excitement, what's fun for them. Uh, you might have calculated things in advance and thought, okay, this encounter is going to be really tough. But then in play, because of, the die rolls and the decisions made. Uh, it's a cakewalk for the, the player characters. Sometimes just give them the cakewalk. Let them savor that victory. Other times you can do things to make things a bit more difficult on the spot. One of the easiest things DMs can do, because I get asked a lot, you know, well, how can, you know, if I see things are going uh, uh, too quickly, and it's, because sometimes that easiness can be narratively unsatisfying. Uh, one of the easiest ways that you can uh, add a little difficulty, uh, cause a combat that maybe it feels like the group wants it to go on a little longer, uh, is just raise the hit points of the monsters. Mm. Um, in every monster, uh, there's a number of hit points uh, printed, but then next to the hit points, in parentheses, we give the hit the hit dice of the monster. And so if you look in that parentheses, you're basically seeing the potential range of hit points for that creature. It means you could go lower and you could go higher. So play with that range, DMs. Uh, look there, and if you, want, if you want your standard goblin to be a bit tougher, just look in the parentheses next to its hit points, and you'll see that that goblin could indeed go up a bit. Yeah. And it could also go down. If, if you'd like to, let's say you'd like to have monsters that sort of pop like balloons uh, the way fourth edition style minions do well then you know just bottom out the monster's hit points because uh, uh, you know again you have a range there uh, in in parentheses yeah and, and you can and because here's the thing the players are never going to know you're doing it uh, <laughs> <Or> hopefully <laughs> right hopefully you don't have that one player who's like looking over your screen and be like what? and uh, but I bring this up because uh it might be easy for a DM to think, well, is that cheating or is that fudging in some way? And no, what I'm telling you is no. That's actually you're using the monster as intended if you play with that hit point range. Yeah. Uh, the the number that appears as the number of hit points for a monster in the Monster Manual or Volo's Guide to Monsters or in one of our adventures uh, is the average for a monster of that type. It the it is not like the monster must, you know, must only have that number of hit points to start. No, right. You can vary. Uh, so that – And you can also go the other way though too. Like if, if a, a fight is taking too long, it feels like they've already kind of bested the, mm-hmm. the strategies needed to, to make it happen and, you know, you're like three rounds left at the current thing to get all the monster's hit points down, just lop them off. Right? Exactly. Because you can go – if that's the average, then you can go – uh, at, at a lesser number, and then you're, everybody's happy. Like, oh, yeah, we did it, and you defeated the monster. Good. Yes. Yep. 
Yeah, because I'm sure every DM has had that experience where sometimes it's exciting that that monster has only one hit point left and everyone's going to enjoy that extra round of combat that's now necessary to shave away that one hit point. Yeah. But then there are those other times where the person does this awesome blow, they describe it really well, but because of their role, their hit is going to leave the monster with one hit point. And many DMs I know have just made that one hit point quietly disappear <laughs> and said the, the monster dies. It never existed. It never existed. It was a Schrodinger's hit point. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and again, DMs, when you do that, you're not cheating because our monsters are built for you to have some flexibility yeah. uh, when it comes to how many hit points and they And it all have. comes down to what you said. Like, what is the, what is the guideline for whether an encounter is, is, is successful or not? Was it fun? Was it fun? Uh, now, one thing I, I also want to talk about uh, before we close is this question of what's the right number of combat encounters in the adventuring day? This is a, this is a question I get sometimes. Mm. The Dungeon Master's Guide has a section about the, what, what's called the adventuring day. And it mentions that a typical party can withstand six to eight encounters uh, before they're going to need a long rest. This this bit in the Dungeon Master's Guide sometimes gets misread as saying uh, sort of a correct adventuring day has six to eight encounters. That is not the intent of that text. Really, again, all that text is telling you is if you're curious, DM, about how much can they take in a day, six to eight encounters is the limit. Uh, now, this is assuming that they are encounters of sort of typical difficulty. If they're all cakewalks, well, then, you know, a party might be Eight able to, to take more. Yeah. But a typical group up, up against, you know, average difficulty combat encounters is going to tucker out around six to eight encounters. Again, we do not design the game thinking the correct adventuring day is six to eight encounters. Because like, mm. many adventuring days might have only one. Uh, some will have three. Some will have four. Uh, that's fine. Those are all legitimate ways to construct uh, a D&D adventure. But the um, six to eight number is just basically the ones that where resources begin, like spells and, and consumable things, will start to get low. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then we also tell you that, you know, in especially in an adventuring day that, that runs on that long, you're, then a group is also likely to have one or two short rests. Uh, but that's, again, highly variable. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, yeah. The game is is designed uh, to accommodate that variability. Well, that's why I only schedule six to eight meetings per day, is because that's the limit. That's the <laughs> only I can only have six to eight encounters in my in my working day. Right. And I it, tell my boss, I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I can't have any more. <laughs> it's funny how it does kind of map <laughs> to the work day. Yeah. <laughs> I can only take eight meetings. Although, no. ooh, that sounds like I a didn't lot. even get a short rest. <laughs> I know. Have you been trapped in this room the, uh, the whole, whole time? The whole time. <laughs> this is only my fourth encounter of the day, so I think I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, it has been a great time uh, talking to you. Those were those were great nuggets of sage advice. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you and ask you more about uh, encounter building or, or anything with the D&D 5th edition rules, how can they do so? Uh, best way is on Twitter, where I can be reached at Jeremy E. Crawford. Awesome. I am at Greg Tito. You can ask me some of those things, and maybe if Jeremy's busy, I'll walk him over to him and do these things called letters. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with another different segment uh, in next week. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye, everyone.
Uh, that was a really good uh, excitement with Jeremy. I know so much about encounter building. Exactly. And what, the best part about that is, is there's no rule for what makes a, a good encounter. There's no one thing in our books that's going to make it fun. The rule is, did people enjoy it? Yeah, and but- that's it. You're going to have guidelines and things to make you help you make that decision, but it will always change based on, like, rolls of the dice, what drunky two-shoes to mess everything up. She makes things more fun. She really does. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of people hard. who make fun, that's called the segue, people. I'm a professional. The D&D Adventurers League? We're going to talk about the D&D Adventurers League. So let's call up uh, Travis Woodall and Claire Hoffman and, and talk all about it. Let's do it. All right. Hi, guys. Wow, that was fast. This is like a cooking show where we say we're going to put this in the oven for 30 minutes. But really, we happen to have one already prepared. They were here, right, the whole time. Weird. Hi, Claire. Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Good. And Travis, hi. Hi. We can see you, Travis, so everyone will know when you're talking. So I have to listen to when Claire is talking. Uh, So you guys are admins for the D&D Adventurers League. Uh, what does that mean? You guys are in like the content section of those admins, right? That's what, at least that's what Chris Lindsay told me. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. What does that mean? Um, it's about (laughs) getting the adventures together and deciding where we're going and what we're doing. And, uh, Travis normally works out a narrative for the season and then we work out concepts and, send them to Mr. Lindsay, and once they're approved, we send them to Bill, and he goes find authors for it. And then we edit them when they come in. Oh, I see. That's how you guys work with the That is interesting. So to go back a little bit, you uh, create the, like, narrative arc for the season based on the either the book releases that Dungeons & Dragons team is putting out with or the uh, adventures and, and come up with the overall plot, essentially. And then... The the uh, folks we talked to uh, uh, previously on Dragon Talk, Bill Benham and Greg Marks, they're the ones who do like individual episodes, essentially. Like, so you guys you guys create the arc for the campaign in a way uh, for the seasons, and then they fill in and and write the, each individual adventure. Did I get that right? No. Oh. No. Okay. So <laughs> oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it away from you, Claire, and give it to Travis. You tell me what I got wrong there. <laughs> So what Claire and I do, we develop the narrative for the story, um, and we base that on the adventure and the materials that we get in advance of the, the hardcover adventures release. Um, and then uh, from that narrative, we make concepts for each adventure. So if we're going to have, for example, for this season, we have 19 adventures. We'll make 19 different concepts that will have uh, a, a brief uh description of like the blurb if you're familiar with uh yeah. you know previous incarnations of organized play um so a brief description of what the adventure is uh you know any persistent elements that we want like the adventure should feature this bad guy or it should go to this location and then uh also we assign the magic item because each adventure has a magic item in it um and then as well as any faction activity that we want to put in it and then those concepts we give to Bill and Greg, and Greg assign those to authors who then work in dark, dusty rooms <laughs> without windows for a few months and then turn over the product to us where we edit and review them. And Okay, so my analogy like was wrong, but now it actually sounds more like you guys are the showrunners. Uh, if I was using like a TV analogy, you are the, the people who are coming up with the, not, you know, 
not letting the episodes write themselves, but be like, okay, these are the outlines of where the episodes need to be. And then, Correct. And then, yeah. okay, that's cool. Claire, yeah. does that make sense to you? Yes. Okay, good. Phew. Okay. We good. got there. We got there. So what is your, what's the relationship with the writers? Do you ever have back and forth with the writers? Do the writers ever say, I got an idea, I'm going to add more to the story, and do they have the freedom to do that? Who are you directing that question I'll to? I'll direct that call, or that question to Travis. So, yes, uh, before it was kind of, every, you know, the everything went to Bill. Bill worked with the adventure, the, the authors. Um, the authors shot their stuff back to Bill, and then it came to me. So now, usually the authors just CC me and Bill to, you know, they just send it to both of us together, um, and Claire, um, and then that way, if I have questions or if they have questions for me or Claire, we can just, you know, we don't have to worry about Bill being at fancy bar fun time with his friends. You in know, West we Seattle. Go right. back in, in West Seattle and White Center where it's all fancy and how to do. <laughs> uh, uh, we can just answer questions. It, it works out so it's faster that way. That makes sense. And sometimes speed helps. Yes. I, I, I enjoy that as I take a swick from my coffee. Coffee. Mm-hmm. But Fancy. do we do, mm-hmm. so they do have the the creative freedom a little to expand on the story or change the story or Absolutely. Okay. So really the only thing that so the adventure description provides them just like a three or four sentence paragraph on what the adventure is gonna be what we want from the adventure. And then they make up probably eighty percent of it, ninety percent of it on their own. Like we'll have pers- like the persistent elements that we want. Like it should feature this location, or it should feature this bad guy, or it's just you know we just go and they write you know a ten thousand word adventure off of three to four sentences. And do you tell them what levels it should be? Yes. So That's they get assigned a tier. So it'll be either tier one, tier two, tier three, or tier four. Um, so really, they get um, the the description, the tier, the duration. So whether it's two hours or four hours. Um, and then the magic item, anything beyond that is, is subject to their, the whims of their right. imagination. Claire, can you, can you talk a little bit about what, what each magic item you get in each one of these adventures? That sounds pretty exciting. Magical. Well, um, that's kind of, it varies. We basic, uh, the rarity on the tier that the adventurer is going to have. Um, and look at the location, what would be something logical to be there. Mm-hmm. And uh, occasionally we'll go back and forth on it, but, um, and then go through what out, you know, go through the DMG and, and other resources and say, hmm, we'll do pick this one. This makes sense. And we, or we'll argue about it, but come to consensus and put it in the uh, concept. That's pretty cool. Do you guys ever, you know, find a situation where you, there is no perfect magic item for oh. that adventure and then do you make one up? And how does that work? Uh, we don't make new magic items. We, mm. You know, if it's nothing that, that speaks out to us, we'll look at what we've put out so far and see if there's um, something that a class or that's not been given any love or something because put put a magic item in for them um oh you mean so like one that like a class that hasn't gotten a uh, yeah like uh, a bar gaming instrument right i see um 
but we also have to look at a little bit on where the author might have a way of putting it in the adventure. Mm. Where do they, you know, you have to think a little bit on where would they find it? How would it fit in? Um, so hopefully, you know, we're not creating a major obstacle for the author. Do you ever find groups that uh, uh, don't end up getting the magic item for whatever reason? Um, that can happen, especially if it's a more open adventure where uh, an item's placed in one room and they never go there. Right. Um, you know, that can be an issue. Mm-hmm. Or they do something that um, is so against what the author thought would happen that there's no way the NPC would give it to them <laughs> if it's a reward. You know? Right, um, they go so far outside the bounds of what they're You know, they, they take a left turn and end up in Albuquerque and, and <laughs> um, they miss out on a magic item. We try to avoid those kind of situations, but you can't always adjust for every player. Yeah. No, you never know. So were there any adventures, I'm sure, in the time that you've been doing this, and any time when the adventures start getting turned in that you were just like, yes, this is amazing. I can't wait for people to play this one. Is there any from this season that stand out as like people are really going to love this particular without giving us spoilers? Uh, I have it on good authority that uh, 7-5, which is the last of the Tier 1 adventures, is particularly amazing, but that's because I wrote it. <laughs> oh. That makes perfect um, sense. Uh, there is an adventure, I believe, that premiered this month called Unusual Opposition. Uh, the, 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 the adventure number escapes me at the moment, but <laughs> it deals with a um, – uh, what do I, how do I want to put this? Uh, so it deals with subject material that um, I find – I've always found very, very interesting. Mm. Um, so I'm very, lo- I'm, I'm very excited to hear the feedback on that one. Nice. How, how do you get the feedback? Um, well, large, a lot of it on Facebook, but we do have on the Dungeon Masters Guild, um, folks that purchase the adventures have the opportunity to leave reviews. Oh, okay. Um, and we've got DM quests where, you know, Adventures League DMs can, um, leave reviews, uh, and, you know, for every so many reviews they leave, they get credit for, uh, they could faction stuff and, hmm. All kinds of stuff like that. 7-9. Thank you, Merrick. 7-9 is unusual uh, opposition. Yes. All right. And if you know your lore about monsters, the name makes total sense. Otherwise, it probably doesn't. Oh, my gosh. So my we're, in, uh, we're in season seven now, right? Yes. yes. We yes. are E-deep in season seven. I get, I, I get the we're numbering like wrong. Through. Uh, I suggest you guys change them to Tomb of Annihilation season <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. T O A dash O nine. Season seven. Colon Tomb of Annihilation. Got it. Semicolon. And I'm just making that up. As yeah. I'm right. Quotation mark. Banana. Yes. Banana. Closed quotation mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes total sense. So right, you're going through those uh, adventure arcs now, and you guys are now prepping for season eight. Correct. Um. See, not yet. So season season eight or season seven. Uh, is it going to be a long? It's a really long season. It's going to oh, run okay. through summer, so we don't ha- we haven't started really work on season eight. We know what it is, and you know we've done some stuff, but like al preparation, we haven't really started off yet. 
Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize we've it was got a be... lot of we've got a lot of changes coming with season eight that we're ironing out now. Um, uh, changes changes for the ch- 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 yes, exactly. adventures or how no, the adventures league. Did we talk about this last time? What the changes? Can you tell ch- us? Ch- yeah. So. Um, in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, there was some um, new rules for advancement and all kinds of stuff in the back of that. And we're in discussions and negotiations now as far as how we're going to implement that kind of stuff. Oh, you mean okay. as far as the downtime goes? Mm-hmm. Downtime, XP, uh-huh. all kinds of stuff. Oh. It's an interesting problem, right? Because, you know, in a, in a home game, you can choose to have uh, the narrative not advance for X amount of days or hours as you do downtime activities, making right. magic items, things like that. But when you're in a shared campaign like the whole D&D Adventures League, it's like how do you abdicate that? How do you be like, okay, this character can have... And you guys have done that with like weeks, right? You're like, oh, you have this week of downtime and this week of downtime and you get you those... You still use days as a unit, but yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Claire, maybe you can talk a little bit more about like what what... Your how you deal with with the downtime now and and how you're thinking about it for the future. Um, not really. <laughs> well, what about now? <laughs> oh, do you not want to do that now? That makes total sense. Um, it, it's just it's a very fluid topic. Yeah, and um, it's it's one that gets a lot of people excited, and and I think we have to manage expectations. So I'm a little leery of talking about something that we've only briefly touched on talking among ourselves. That makes total sense. Sorry if I set you up for disaster. That's what Good I like fun. to do as a dungeon that's master. Tried, but that's also how Greg rolls. He it's tries true. To, like trip you up and make you say <laughs> things you're not supposed to and get you in trouble with Chris Lindsay. So rather than ask that, I will go with more about uh, you guys mentioned that you, you take the adventures and you edit them. Uh, are, you, are you then the editors of, 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 the, of, the, admin, of the whole group then? That's your that's your role. Yes. How does that? What what's your process for that? How do you uh, go about that uh, when you get the full manuscript and 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 uh, start to make red marks on it? So well, Travis starts that. Okay. Um. Once we've we've we go back and forth with the author a little bit. Um. Once he sends us the draft and we and this gets play tested, so there's we send him back the play test feedback and then eventually he hopefully in a timely manner he sends us back the adventure adjusted for playtest and then we Travis goes through and looks for um, style things uh, that might still be off or and uh, plot and, and character things that might have a hole here and then and once he's gone through his edit then he sends it back through me um, so that, um, I've kind of gotten really used to what wizards often ask of the organizers to play for what's in an adventure and how the words are used. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can spot a, the word will in like at 90 meters. Um, <laughs> which, which word? Will. W-I-L-L? The, character, the characters will do something. No, the characters do something. The uh, monsters will do something. No, the monsters do something. And oh, that, I, is that like the future tense? What is that called? The future perfect tense? Something like that? You just, as a style, don't use that? Right. Um, it, it's something that 
for years now, I've had my the people that I've responded to at Wizards basically pound that into my head. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I look for things that I, you know, I look at and send him back my edits and any questions or holes I might see, and then we put it together and, and Travis sends it off. That's cool. But Travis does Travis does most of the heavy lifting. Nice. That makes sense. Um, I, I have one of those editing things, too, that one of my editors who was teaching me that just jam in my brain, I can't ever get it out, what? is when people say something is over uh, 45 or, like, you know, you don't never want to go over, you know, I mean, we had over 10,000 10, hours people watching stuff. Yeah. She always was like, over is, you know, is a placement of things on top of something. That is over. If you're if you have more than you have the number is like we're talking about numbers is more than, uh, and she oh. always was a stickler about that. Every time I try to be like you know this game has over nine thousand people I playing it right now, they'd be like that. she has more than. She always changes it to more than, and I've gotten used to it now. I can kind of let it go, but it wow. still bothers me on a on a visceral level. Jeez, I know, right? I've noted. So I know what you're talking about, Claire. Where you have that like this is the one thing that like if you learn anything. This is <laughs> never use the word will. Yeah, yeah. The writers do submit their work correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Not will. Exactly. See what I did there? They do do their they do, do saves. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> their do saves must be pretty high. Wait, that doesn't work. Not so much. Uh, so, Travis, when did you start playing both the Dungeons and the Dragons? Did you start as a kid? Did you start uh, in your adulthood? I, I think I, I was like eleven or maybe ten. Um, I was in fifth grade, and my mom actually, you know, unlike Bill, who, you know, I don't, I don't know if he went into this with you, but he had, you know, um, controversial reactions to his desire to play D anD. d My mom bought me the red box yeah. when I was a youth. Yeah, the um, opposite. Good for her. Yes, good for her. Um, but she didn't like to play, and none of my friends did. So it was mostly me, like drawing. You know, it was the '80s, so D and D back then was everything was mazes. Just gonna draw a maze and put things in it. And I would run my mother through terrible, terrible adventures while she was trying to, you know, cook <laughs> oh or you know, so do whatever. You were just watch General you were Hospital. Trying to play with her. Yeah, she didn't want to have nothing to do with it. So it's like, oh, here's this awesome game, but you can, you know. That's right. cute. Yeah. That is pretty cute. Go watch G.I. Joe or something, you know, and, and just draw mazes. I bet so in her mind, I bet her mind she was like, I got you this so you wouldn't bother me right. anymore. Yeah, that's what it probably was. <laughs> Having kids myself now, right? That's pretty much what you do. That is adorable. Yeah. It's just distractions. Now, did yeah. you ask for the red box or was it something no, like she I saw thought... and she was like, my kid's going to love this? I... I th- I think it was in reaction. We pro- I probably she probably saw me watching the D and D cartoon at some point, mm. like some Saturday morning, um, and you know, bought me that because she thought that I was into it. I'd never I didn't even know that it was a game at the time, mm-hmm. um, but we've heard that a lot where people were like, I, I mean, I think myself too. Like I watched the cartoon and never really put it together yeah. that it was like a a, a thing to play uh, until you know a year or two later. Yeah. And then, you know, getting older, um, I learned about other games. Like, I was really big into Palladium systems for a long time. Like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is kind of a standard for folks to cut their teeth on. 
Um, but then, you know, going into high school, you know, listening to Back to the Hotel and stuff like that. I didn't have time for, for you know. Play things in my youth. You know, there was a good two or three years where I was just too cool for school, you know. So. Um, that that ended quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two years. For a while. You only had two years, two good years. <laughs> yeah. Then you were like, yeah. And then I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not fooling anybody. So. <laughs> <laughs> Took the packet of blackjack out of my pocket, threw that away, and then joined the army and shocked, like, surprisingly huge gaming population in the military. Yeah. Because uh, I think most of them are just bored. So It's a great downtime. It Speaking of downtime, that's, like, perfect, right? You're yeah. in. You don't Hurry need... up and wait is what they say. That's, I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. It's good enough for government work. It's good enough for government work. So got back into it then, um, and then, you know, that was 90 Five, so pretty much solid since then. I've been I've been playing, dude. That's like twenty three years. Yeah, long good, time. Good math. Good yeah. math. I, every once in a while, I get I you know. You're not a real theater guy. Just like, yeah. <laughs> the arithmetic just it's mostly from Dungeons and Dragons. It's where I learned yeah, how to like add and subtract yeah. numbers yeah. Like quickly. Add anything to a d twenty roll. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I did. It was twenty years plus three. I'm like, all right, yeah, I got it. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. And uh, were you always playing D&D Adventurers League? No. Uh, so in 2000 in oh God, what year was it? 2003. So I got out of the military in 2000. My wife was still in, and we uh, moved to the Netherlands. Really? Uh, yeah. So we lived in the Netherlands for a few years. I had a group there. I had two groups there. Um, and then moved back to Washington, or not back to Washington, moved to Washington um, in 2003. Um, where I ran into Bill again. So Bill, I'd been running, we've been following each other across the country for like the last, don't, I'm not going to say the number, 22 years. Um, so he was in Washington. Um, I showed up in Washington. We ran into each other. Um, and then on Meetup, I found a group of people that played um, Living Greyhawk at the public library and um, showed up. Um, and it was kind of, you know, there's, you know, so, you know, sometimes people that enjoy our shared hobby have, there's a stigma and, you know, I ran into, you know, <laughs> some, some interesting people. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the 14 years since then, I've met some of the closest friends I've ever had just playing Living Greyhawk, then Living Forgotten Realms and now uh, Adventures League. That's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. it changed. Yeah. I mean, it's it, you're you're tracing a little bit how the uh, uh, organized play kind of changed and morphed over the course of uh, of several years uh, there. So that's that's pretty awesome. We talked yeah. about that in the last interview with Bill Benham. If you guys are uh, and, and Greg Marks, if you're interested in getting more history about that, um, so cool. And it's awesome that you're able now to to you know do that now for. Um, people and kids who are getting into D and D now—they're having that through the stuff that you're working on. Yeah, and it's scary and humbling and exciting and satisfying all at the same time. Nice. I like all those. All it's those a whirlwind words. of different feelings and. You're emotions. a glass case of emotion all yes. the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's exactly what it's like. Nice. What about you, Claire? What's your history with D and D? Um, it's a, a tad longer. Um, <laughs> a, a friend uh, at work, uh, we've been talking books, and they realized I was into science fiction and fantasy books. 
as well as the genres that we had in common. And she told me her husband was running this game on Saturdays and she would like to have somebody that she knew playing it because she wasn't interested in playing it, but she liked the idea of having somebody she knew um, playing it. And uh, her husband was an army recruiter. And uh, so Saturdays I went over and he had me work up a fighter and that was the fall of 1978. Hmm. Um, and that's when I first started playing Dungeons and Dragons. Nice. And you were hooked ever since. Yeah, basically <clears throat> had home games off and on as I moved about a bit. Um, that was in Minnesota and I moved back east and uh, eventually to Philly and had a home game there. And then started going to Gen Con for vacation. Very cool. But when it was in uh, Madison, when right? When it was Milwaukee? No, Milwaukee. Milwaukee. I, yeah, to get away from work because they couldn't call me for ask me a question if I was that far away. <laughs> in the days before cell phones and and such, um, it was, and that's actually where I met my husband. At Gen Con? Yes, we met. We were attended a couple seminars together, and uh, we were both members of the RPGA, and we played a tournament on a Friday night and and met for lunch the next day and exchanged phone numbers and we got married before the next Gen Con. Oh, wow. wow. That's so sweet. Yeah. That's pretty so, cool. Was it a ceremony at, at Gen Con or was oh, it? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. No. Uh, we had the ceremony in Philly, um, had part of our honeymoon, stopped in Ohio where he lived and I was moving to changed out suitcases and gaming bags and then went to Gen Con. Sounds good perfect. deal. That sounds like a perfect honeymoon. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's really good. So, uh, so yeah, you, so tell me a little <laughs> bit about the, about the RPGA, what it was like back then, because that's something I, I was always fascinated about. Um, the RPG back then, um, admittedly majority of the members got it for polyhedron which had a lot of um, articles written by members as well as uh, people in the industry. Um, was the Polyhedron a magazine? Yes, it was okay. a magazine that came out um, with somewhat irregularity until Jean <laughs> Grey took, took it over and she managed to get it off in, in a bi-monthly situation. Um, and uh, her and Skip Williams. And okay. uh, yeah. So there, yeah, at cons, uh, like at Gen Con, there'd be um, what we call tournaments at the time, which were adventures with pre-reg characters, pre-made pre characters complete with a background and, and you know each other and what, how, what you thought about the other characters in the group. And, and you'd sit down at a table and sometimes the DM would just have them face down on the table and you pick blindly and that and played that that character mm. so you'd have you know some and occasionally a dm will say well you know give you the classes and let you pick from which class you prefer to play um so that's the kind of adventures that we're doing then um and a lot of those then, tournament adventures turned into classics that we know now like tomb of tomb of horrors and and, and things like that those were tournament adventures right um and then um, a project got started up in Polyhedron describing places in a city called Ravensbluff, mm -hmm. 
Um, and so the, the, actually the RPG members described the town, the different businesses, the different things. And um, then at Gen Con, the, I did not play in the first two years. Um, the first one, uh, however, my husband did. Uh, the first one was before we got married, uh, on the way to Raven's Bluff. And then the second was, you know, at last Raven's Bluff. I played in the third one, which was Nightwatch. But the idea then was that you created two copies of your character and you handed one in hmm. so that the next year they would, they would assumingly hand you back your character. Oh. Um, that last, um, the, by the fourth year, it was so popular that they had to stop that. Um, but because <laughs> they yeah. couldn't hold on to all those character sheets for that long, like right? They were just... And 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 there was a clamor for it to uh, for other conventions to be able to play have a Living City Adventures. Oh, I see. So it wasn't like you turn them in, you can't ever play them again. There was the idea that was where the idea was born that you could take it to different events and different conventions. Right. It, Ooh, at first, okay. it was only at Gen Con, and then they said. Everybody was going, but we want to play that more often. And right. not just once was, a year. Yeah. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. Not just once a year. We want to build a relationship with our characters and play them all over the place. So, yeah. That's fascinating. So that's, that's how Living City started. Oh, wow. Um, and then it, it was it Living City different than Living Greyhawk? How did it transform into, oh, into that? Um, yeah. Living, um, Living City was kind of everything occurred in that area or, or around it. So it was very deep. Um, the adventures, you know, people built up adventures over time. Um, Living Greyhawk was basically when third edition occurred. And okay. it was the basis of third edition. And, um, and at that point, um, trying to go for a, a, a different feel, a different look, uh, an organization, um, each trying to, because occasionally people would go, what well, I can't play often because there's not enough cons in my area, whatever. Um, each state or, um, in some cases, a couple of states together became a different country, uh, right. in Greyhawk. And I believe, um, and so there was a triad who, um, ran that, that area for the people and they, you could only play the adventures if you, those adventures in that state. Right. And Greg, Greg Marks in uh, the previous interview that we did, and he was wearing the one that was from the Wisconsin area. Right. Oh yeah. Which yeah. was, I'm forgetting the name of it. That was Sylvan. Yeah. Was Wisconsin. It? No, High Folk. High yeah, Folk. Yeah. High Folk. Yep. That's right. right. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. That's so cool. So what, what then if it went from living city and Living Greyhawk didn't start until 2000 when 3rd Edition came out. Did Living City continue, uh, you know, from, from 1980 to 2000? It, it continued uh, a tad past that. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, ran a vote on whether to convert or not, and they um, ended up trying to convert it to 3rd th- Edition with um, some success, some uh, headaches. <laughs> uh, Were you involved in that? Um, just as a player at the time, um, though, uh, my husband was, uh, doing the clerical circle for the city. So, um, by association, I got involved in some of the headaches. That makes Um, sense. So I didn't, okay, that's cool. I didn't realize that Living City was so, lasted so long. So it started around 1978, 79 and went all the way to... 
No, Living City started in 80, okay, 90. 90 was the third year, so 88. Oh, 87, 88. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, Matt, I'm really Gen good at math, 90. yes. Gen Con 90 was the third the third year. Okay. Yeah. But it, it, it lasted in some form for, through, uh, through the beginning of third edition. So what do you think the D&D Adventurers League now, you know, have you learned the lessons of, of all of the, the past incarnations of organized play? Like, I'm trying to trace, like, the history of, like, when it, when it started into, into, into what we're doing now. So we stood up in August, no, July of 2014 when 5th edition launched at Gen Con. Yeah. That's when our first adventures premiered. Um. So the one thing that, you know, I played LG, I played LFR. I didn't play Living City because I didn't know I wasn't, I was still in Europe then. Um, but um, we'll forgive you. One of, yeah. One of the things that we try to keep, do now um, is keep I'm trying to think of how to put this. It, we we want to make sure that DMs are empowered to, you know, run the games the way they like to, the way their players like to. Um, you know, as opposed to some of the more rigid play styles that we had back in 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 Living Greyhawk uh, in the days of yore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're doing a really good job with that. You know, the the learning curve for the just the learning curve for the game itself. You know, for fifth edition is you know is not is way less steep than you know it was uh, for for third edition. So. Um, you know, being uh, um, approachable is kind of the, the important thing. Right. We want to so make we, sure that it's... So you were saying that, that some of the older programs, it was harder for the Dungeon Master to, you know, to, to, to kind of shape the story that they wanted to. And so now well, you guys are making sure you're able to do that yeah, more so at the plus, table. Yeah, and plus, you know, the, the you know, when with third edition, the... The rules were, it was a much more intense rule set than 5th edition is. Right, right, right. Um, and, you know, along with the camp, the LGCS, the campaign setting, you also had, like, you know, um, you know, mandatory, you know, rulings that you had to follow as far as, you know, how the, the rules were implemented. And then the, the big thing was, the thing that I'm just, like, scared to death of is having to go through each book and say, okay, this class is not allowed this spell, this spell, this spell is not allowed unless you have, you know, this fancy, you know, unless you do a special mission or something like that. So, you know, we don't have like the band and restricted and, you know, open list. We just, yeah, for the most part, just throw everything out there. You know, we have a few things um, like, you know, flying races at first level we, we try to steer away from. And that's just because, you know, our DMs, while it's gotten a lot better, um, DMs still, you know that can be a significant challenge at low levels uh, for for new DMs. So we try to, you know, not um, have five people who can fly uh, to start uh, an adventure yeah. at first level. Hmm. Yeah, That's generally just, a good, good idea. And just disallow or allow rules based on what we perceive as being, you know, too powerful for you know organized right. play. And really, you know, <clears throat> at the end of the day, it's there's five of us or six of us, and you know billions of players so they're going to win and outthinking the rules over us every day and twice on Sundays 
But you're trying, trying to make it. We are trying. Fair and balanced and yes. fun for everyone. Yeah. And yeah. the other major difference is that back then they had this odd little idea that um, if they wrote the adventure and ma- and told the DMs they had to run it exactly as written, everybody would have the same experience. Uh, um, and we've gone so far from that. Um, yeah. We're as far as allowing DMs to add thematic appropriate um, monsters if they need to change it up for what the players bring to the table, um, and it, acknowledging that. Every DM is different. Every group of players are different. They're going to have similar experiences, but they're not going to have the same experience and that it's quite fine to do that. Yeah. That's, I mean, that seems to be a tenet of 5th edition as a whole, too, in all my conversations with, with Jeremy and Mike Merles and Perkins and all the rest of the team is that, like, acknowledging the fact that Dungeon Masters are going to bring different things to the table uh, different skill sets and, and that everybody's table is going to be different uh, uh, and, you know, use use the rules as guidelines but do what's best for your game. Now, you guys have to do a little bit more towards, you know, uh, uh, homogenizing the content so that people don't feel like, oh, that was a crappy thing or this was, you know, like you have to... So I, I respect you guys for having to deal with that. I think on, a, on the editor level, you probably deal with that a lot to make sure that, you know, something that happens in the third adventure of a season doesn't mess up what you have planned for the 10th adventure in a season and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes. That's, that is part of the thing too. So are these adventures, is there supposed to be elements that carry over throughout or do you avoid that? Or do you actually try to encourage that? We, in, in, in seasons one and two, and I think three, we had a survey at the end of the adventure. We had a big old, you know, QR code that the players could look at with their phones and it would use science and the internet to take them to a questionnaire that they could fill out science yeah the responses were not we didn't get a lot of responses we got some responses. we didn't get a lot but we, we tried to use those as a way to um uh you know, shape the, yeah. exactly yeah and it was very it was a lot more feasible than it is than it is now because back then you know we wouldn't do all of the adventure concepts at the same time at the beginning of the season and then dump them out. We would do some and then release them and then some and then release them and then some and release them. So, you know, when the first batch of adventures was done and people were responding to the, th- to the, um, to the questionnaire, the survey, we would get those back and then usually we would um, be able to use them in the, you know, the third batch of adventures that was going out Um and that's where we came along. If, if you know, for those viewers who are familiar with season one, um, which was all about you know, the tyranny of dragons, that whole tyranny of dragons, yeah, rise so, of Tiamat. Mm-hmm. So there was a cultist of the dragon uh, by the name of Halvin who ventured into the quivering forest just north of Flan, who had um, entered into this pact with the Fae, like you know, hundreds of years ago, uh, and the Fae would not pester the folks in Flan, and Flan wouldn't go and cut trees down. So this guy, this cultist of the dragon, went in there to try and convince the Dark Fae to betray Flan, betray the town, and help them invade, and everything like that. Uh, and that went pear-shaped, and the pact was broken. I'm not going to say completely because, but largely because of, you know, the the adventurers were unable to convince the 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 fae to uh 
to maintain the pact. And because of that, um, a great big green dragon named Vorgan Sharax inv- attacked Flan and killed all the, the people that ran it and plunged the city into some very dark times. But now when, at, you know, you know, cut to, you know, now where we do all the adventure concepts at the beginning of the season, it's a lot more difficult to do that on a bit on a large scale like we did with, uh, you know, the earlier seasons. But we can still put little nuggets of, you know. Oh, so you're saying that that like little bit of 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 uh, information of was decided based on the play of the of the adventurers in the D&D Adventurers League. In right? the early so seasons, yeah. In the early seasons, you were able to say, like, okay, now, that, but this is now canon for the Forgotten Realms, is that the Dark Fade and, right. and, yep. and Flan yeah, is gone. So that, yeah, so that was, that was an existing story element that was, um, uh, that predeceased 5th uh, edition right. was the, the Fae. Interesting. But we were able to tweak it and, right. um, you know, uh, uh, we got our pick from you know the the story bible that comes out at the beginning of each season. We got our pick of you know one of three pictures, and the, the picture I picked was this awesome picture of this green dragon kind of looming behind this throne with like a pool of blood at the bottom of it. So I was like, that's what we're going with. Neato. So uh, we, I've seen a few people ask about this uh, in chat, and it's pretty much you know one of the major. Uh, goals for D and D Adventurers League is like: Is it easy to jump in? Is 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 this the the best conduit for for people to get, you know, an introductory experience uh, of Dungeons and Dragons if they're interested in, you know, and uh, and what what strides have you guys done in trying to make sure that that is is true, so that people won't go to a a game store or a convention or or anywhere that a D and D Adventurers League is being played, um, that they can you know feel like they're in a, a welcoming, uh, a good place and get their you know. Uh, a good represent, representative activity of playing Dungeons and Dragons. You know, is that is that true, Claire? But how do you guys work on making sure that that is that is true for all of the seasons here? Well, part of that is is making sure that that all are represented in the adventures, um, and and doing it in a way that's not artificial. Um, yeah, as far as that's concerned, um, and by the code of conduct that we put out there for the, the league as a whole and uh, remind DMs in the beginning, there's a, Oh, is a beginning part of the adventure where you remind DMs, this is supposed to be fun. You're supposed to include everyone. Um, and you know, of our general code of conduct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean also from the crafting of the adventures and stuff like that too. You're also thinking about it from, from, from that aspect. Well, we, you have to think about it simply from the, the aspect of you don't know what's going, what type of character is going to show up at the table as well as what type of player. Right. Um, you know, there's all varying different play styles. So uh, having options for the group that really likes to role play their way through a combat. In, you know, it, or around a combat, or the group that's really smart about puzzles. It part of the way you get uh, welcoming to them is by having different styles of adventures. Not every adventure being exactly alike. Um, you can you can't make one adventure. I don't believe 
totally happy, you know, one four hour adventure or two hour adventure totally hit everyone's happiness level right. with what ha- what occurs. But you can have enough different types of adventures that f- maybe one focuses more on role playing, one pl- focuses more on uh, investigation, one focuses more on combat. Having a variety out there makes everyone feel like, okay, I didn't get to shine in this one, but I did in the one right before this. Yeah. That's cool. Yep. That's cool. I like that. I think a lot of people do have their first experiences, you know, going through the content that you guys are, are, are shaping and crafting. So kudos to you for, uh, you know, I don't know, just being that first experience for a lot of people. It sounds like it's similar to a lot of your first experiences while playing, too, is, is getting them uh, uh, up to speed with what makes Dungeons & Dragons fun. And I like that you're paying attention to the fact that everybody's different and you're not always going to get uh, uh, exactly what you want. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's all really admirable and it's doing good work. We try. All right, then. We do. Where can people, if, they, if they're interested after they listen to this, uh, where can people try to find, the, hey, the first Dungeons & Dragons uh, Adventurers League thing that they're going to play? Claire, go ahead. Do it. Um, where they're going to find to play it? Yeah. How, how, where would you say if someone's like, hey, I want to do this, where, where would you suggest they look first? Um, they could look in their local store. A lot of the, the gaming stores have... Um, Nice that they devote to uh, D&D Adventure League play um, and have um, meetups, uh, some of them, and local conventions. Uh, If they want to start their own group, they can go to DM's Guild and download uh, the DM pack and the player pack and just play in their home. Mm -hmm. Um, If if they have a group and they want to try Adventure League on their own, in their own home that you can play it just about anywhere. Um, if you don't have a group though, going to your local game store or, uh, looking for a local con convention that has gaming is probably your best bet. Yeah. I like that change, uh, that came, gosh, what was that two years ago already mm-hmm. where you could download the adventures from the dungeon masters guild, uh, and play them anywhere. Uh, I love that idea of like you can run an event at the top of a lighthouse. You can run an event in your, you know, the basement of your school. You can run an event, you know, uh, on the yes. International Space Station. Like you can do it wherever you are and still feel like you're oh, participating in this. Oh. I know, right? I sh- now I want to go pitch the. Now it's like, mm, yeah, we need to get Alan Patrick and Lisa on that. Yeah, do we? it. Make it happen. If they are the only ones who <laughs> can do it, we'll get uh, uh, sue the T Rex and all the museums oh, in yeah. Chicago to play it too. We can get. People on the moon to play it. Uh, but, yeah, right, you, you can get these. And, and people have always been asking about, like, you know, bite-sized adventures, you know, because the big published adventures we do are 256 pages. There's a lot of content to get through. But these adventures that Dungeons that you, know, you guys are working on and editing and releasing over the course of a season, you know, are those modules, are those, you know, short little two-hour or four-hour things that people remember being produced back in the day for the tournament modules you guys were talking about, too. So, yep. yeah, you can it's do those and way. play them anywhere. Good way to get a taste of the story. Too. Yeah, right. Because they're they're ancillary to the yeah. uh, to the to the big adventures, but they're not in like a giveaway yep. stuff. But you feel like you're still participating in Tomb of Annihilation when you're doing the Tomb of Annihilation yeah. season, right? Yes. Right. 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 
I love it. I love it when a plan comes together. It's like it's totally been planned. Plan comes together. So, so where can people find out about what you guys are personally doing? So we'll have to go with you, Travis. Where where can people find you if they want to message you about how awesome you are editing D and D Adventures League Adventures? I have a Twitter account. Okay. Yeah. Um, dot dot I'm dot. Not super active. Usually, it involves me uh, retweeting things that have my name on them like <laughs> two, three weeks afterwards. It's al- I almost do it intentionally at this point. Nice. Um, well, you're going to uh, get a whole I lot of followers at, now. Yeah. I am at Travis Woodall on the tweeter, on the Twitter. Um, I am also on Facebook. Um, I am fairly active in both. We have two Facebook groups. We have D&D Adventures League, and we have a D&D Adventures League DM discussion uh, group. Oh, cool. Um, the, the, the former... Mostly we try to focus on, you know, here are some cons. Here are some, you know, updates for the program. Here are general program rules. Uh, we try to keep the general rule discussion out of that stuff. So we put that into a D&D Adventures League DM discussion. Whoa! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Someone's <laughs> excited, excited about, about that. Someone's um, excited about that group. <laughs> uh, so I'm really active on those. Um, and then I am also on just Facebook. I don't know what my Facebook is. Your name? I mean, it's, yeah. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's Travis it's Woodall. It's my name. And nice. I don't know what my phone is. Travis Woodall. Travis.Woodall1. One. Yeah. Okay. Singular sensation. Uh, what about you, Claire? <laughs> Where can people find out more about what you're doing uh, for the D&D Adventures League? Well, I'm a little bit more active than Travis on Twitter. Um, at Dragonview Claire. Uh, for Twitter, and I also occasionally post on Facebook. Usually, Travis is so quick to answer questions that um, I don't post that often. Nice way to compliment um, him into doing more work. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. that. I, <laughs> that was the right active. way to do it. He's just quicker. He's just so much better at it than I am. <laughs> that's He's how more attached to his computer and notifications than I am. Oh, that's where the truth, <laughs> the truth is out now. Yes, yes. He, he, he doesn't have to feed cats, so. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, people can message you there. And uh, you, as you said you were in the, the throes of working on some stuff uh, about downtime as well as season eight. And I can't wait to uh, get in touch with you guys more about uh, you know, the, the, the future of D&D Adventures League. There's a lot coming down the pipe. Yep. A lot coming down the pipe. Yes. Always things coming down the pipe. Awesome. Yes. Oh, and I, and I forgot to say, you can also email Claire and I um, at content at dndadventuresleague.org. Okay. So yeah. if you have questions about the campaign, the story, or if you just want to yell at me. Or just say Or hi. Claire. Or, or Claire, because we both get that. Nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to send you an email right now. Yelling? Yes. Click. Just sent. I was yelling. Travis is, Travis is literally the worst. <laughs> Hashtag. Literally. Angry face. <laughs> I was told I was supposed. I was told I was supposed to make fun of your, uh, uh, your 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 rag around your head at some point, but. Yeah, we're... it's a problem. So I'm trying to grow my hair out, <laughs> and in between George Clooney and Fabio, it's like two years of Charles Manson. So. <laughs> It's not pretty. Or we're in it's the good. Charles Manson phase. We're in the, we are like steadfastly in the Charles I didn't Manson realize. phase. What? It's a good thing your your, your forehead is clear. That's no, all that really like matters. Oh, yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> I mean, 
right. Well, it's just it looks bad. good. You're doing well. You're doing well. Well, thank, thank you guys you. so much for <laughs> I'm pulling it off. Thanks You're for taking the time to talk fashion tips with uh, with Shelley. If yep. you need with Shelley Greg, if you need more, uh, please call into Fashion Tips. Uh, <laughs> We're gonna get those branded branded hair bands. Yeah, for the grow out. And Claire, I feel like I have to. We have to do a whole another interview with you to trace the whole <laughs> all of the uh, things that Travis is doing wrong with his hair, as well as. Uh, yeah. The history of 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 the RPGA know, and all that stuff. What a great resource! Yeah, for... I feel like we just scratched the surface. There's so much more to talk about there. History. Yes. So we'll have yes, because I am old. Yes. <laughs> no, because you you have a wealth of knowledge. She could do like a lore <laughs> yes. you should know. Like yeah, she's a, a repository. You're like, you're like Elminster, but cooler. Lore. <laughs> Less hairy. <laughs> Thank you guys so much, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you more soon. Thank you. Thank you very much for Thank having you. me. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. No problem. It was an hoot. Yep. <laughs> and and history. It was an an hoot. An hoot and yes. nanny. An hoot and nanny. An nanny. Gosh, I feel like there's so much more uh, uh, history of the the o- OP, the organized play, as they call I didn't it here in the building. How long ago, but living stuff started. I didn't either. It's not that different than it is today. No. Yeah. I I, I want to get more of the meta stuff of like how you you know like because you know, I, I remember hearing stories from 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 Grognars back in the day like oh I have a shop in in so and so town and you're like what you're like yeah in the RPG I have a shop that I run mm-hmm. that I can trade magic items or whatever and do all that I'm like oh my god that's so cool it makes it feel like you're uh, uh, you know uh, really in a living city yeah it's a great idea to, yeah. great way to put it forth nice so we'll have the living D and D Adventurers League. And you got to be part of an association. And they're all cursing me for saying all these things, I'm sure. I'm, uh, I'm the problem. You it, it shall be true. I know, exactly. You just got to imagine it, and it becomes so. There you go. Like a dungeon master. It's like, just channel the universe. Bum, bum, bum. There you go. So. Fun. Yeah, good times all around town. They're hardworking people. Exactly. Those admins. Yeah. Also, you can have fun. You can have fun while working at your job. It's possible. Yeah. You can do it. Or... Wherever. Uh, or while playing Dungeons & Dragons right. on the International Space Station. How are we going to make a, that or happen? Or a lighthouse. Yeah, or a lighthouse, A lighthouse right? would be kind of cool. Why is the lighthouse? I always go to that because I'm like, Do you? it's such a great idea to be like, what if you were playing D&D in a lighthouse? You know? It would probably be cold and uncomfortable, but still pretty cool. <laughs> it would be a, have to be a seafaring you know, campaign. It would have to be something that yeah. had to do with why you were in the that lighthouse. That would be really cool. But it would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, to see it all, all unfold before you. A lot of stairs. Right, but then you would just walk up once and just stay in the light, the, you know, oh, the top of the lighthouse the whole I time. Guess. Maybe I'm actually just don't have I have no conception of what the actual architecture of a lighthouse Where's is. There's a bathroom in a lighthouse. It's, just, it's on the light. You just pee on the light and it, and it, uh, <laughs> it evaporates immediately. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't sound safe. <laughs> Do not hire Greg to work on your lighthouse. <laughs> That's what that means. If Greg invites you to a lighthouse to play D and D, you know, bring a bucket. This is true, and a mask. Um, I don't know. Why. I don't know either. I don't know why, because it's Halloween and it's a masquerade. Oh, All right, a so adventure. that was tons of fun. We have lots of more uh, delving into D and D Adventurers League and other interviews. Uh, in fact, next week we're talking to uh, the RPG research team, uh, which will be really fascinating. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, I can't wait that for that. Is, that's our jam. Yeah, plus with some fun lore you should know, I think we're going to talk about uh, the Goliath race. Oh. Yeah, that's what we got planned for next time. Look I know. Exactly. I like know the future. We're getting better at time traveling. I went into and the future the dates. and I came back into this timeline. But you didn't have to go so far into the future like last time. Well, the weird thing is I stepped on a butterfly in the future. Ooh. 
and I don't think that matters anymore, right? The butterfly effect doesn't go backwards, does it? I'm screwed. We're all dead. That's what's happened. That's what I screwed up our timeline by doing this. Goodbye. So if you want to get in touch with me about how I screwed up the timeline, I'm not going to throw it to you. I'm going to do it first. You can message me on Twitter. I'm at Greg Tito. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm also on the Instagrams with the Greg underscore Tito. Been throwing lots of pictures up there. I got to follow. Oh, I am following you. You are following me. Did you see uh, I I posted a picture of uh, Edna made a unicorn (gasps) out of construction paper and tape. That's my favorite. So good. I would buy it. Yeah. She also did a sleeping owl, which I know you would love. Oh, I would like that. And I'm like, why is this owl? That's so cute. Why does it have its eyes closed? And they're like, because it's sleeping, Dad. I'm like, is it the same medium with the construction paper? No, totally different. It was just draw. It was just a line drawing with a. Um, yeah, She's it's amazing. Really good. It's amazing. Yeah, yep. I love. I love waking up to being you, like, what? You, what kind of art? You should follow Greg on Instagram just to see his daughter's drawings. <laughs> it's They're true. So good. And I have one. She I have gave two, it to you. Actually, I have two. She gave it to you. They're both hanging up. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yep. I had a few people who wanted that owl one. They're like, I oh, need I this. I like the unicorn one. I was I know. kind of. Again. It's jazzy. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, I also do some D&D adventures and, you know, talk about what's going here in the office. But Oh, once in a while. Mostly kid stuff. It's mostly the kid drawings. Mostly. What about you? How can people get in touch with you? Oh, I'm on the Twitters at Shelly Moo or the Facebooks. Yeah? Were you talking about the, the new Bachelor season on your Facebook? I am. Oh, you can man. go to the Shelly Mazenoble writer page if you want your Bachelor updates. <laughs> you will get them like five to six days late, but you'll get them. There'll be an update. Still an update. You'll still make fun of all the contestants. Well, I don't make fun. I just talk about what they did. <laughs> if that's making fun, that's what they, they did. It's true. Most of like it is. Like crying about bumper cars. That. Pressed memory. Is Erin watching? I think she is. Yeah. yeah. She's hiding it. I put her. on my headphones. I can't, yeah. I can't even hear it. It makes me angry. This season would make you really angry. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. I think I remember. It's not the, even a good bachelor. Wasn't the dude like from a previous one? Yeah, I was like, like five was, years ago. He was like I didn't a, like him then. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was one from a more recent one. No. All right. It was a long time. ago. We were gonna have a, a podcast just talking about the bachelor, but we decided to just work it into Dragon Talk. So thank Thanks. you for that. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Thanks for indulging me. You're awesome. Uh, we are gonna be back next week with some more Dragon Talk fun stuff. Uh, yeah, we are. But until then, uh, I think those rocks are gonna have to fall. Oh no! Oh. Everyone's dead.